0: Growing a business is hard, but it does not have to be. Once a week, we take a break from the hustle and bustle in business to talk about innovations and what's new in the C-suite. This is the Fractional C-Suite Retreat, and I'm Joseph Frost. Pull up a seat at the fire, grab a drink, smoke a cigar, and just join me as we relax, learn, and get inspired. This retreat is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow with better marketing strategy. Welcome. Today's guest is Wendy Pease. Wendy's a member of the International Executive Resources. She's host of her own global marketing show podcast, author of The Language of Global Marketing, and is a language translation expert at Rapport International. Welcome, Wendy. Glad to have you today.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad we're able to hop on again and talk a little bit about what you do. It's really fascinating to me. Uh, But before we get into those specific details. I always like to start the show off with a question about, uh, from your perspective, what what are some of the opportunities that you see out there that the C-suite should be aware of that they may not be quite, quite considering from, from your perspective, from your vantage point?
1: Oh, from my vantage point from day one, of a company starting their business, they should be thinking about going international. And so many people say the U.S. is such a large market. Why would I do that? Or other people don't speak English, I'm afraid. But you run into problems, like if you're developing software and you don't think about globalizing it, it becomes a nightmare later on. I can talk to you about examples of famous companies that they're they're just not set up to handle global marketing. Um, And then other companies start getting inquiries from around the world, and they don't know how to handle it. So our borders have become so fluid. And the number of people that uh, speak English as a second language in the United States alone is changing dramatically. So even if you don't leave our borders, there's a huge opportunity. If you go on Telemundo or Univision and look at the ads, you'll see all the major consumer products are advertising in Spanish. And it, I mean, you got me something that I'm so passionate about, I could go on and on. But I'll I'll say this last thing that um, the United States has the is the country with the second largest Spanish-speaking population in the world. So Mexico has the largest number of Spanish speakers. The U.S. has the second, and our numbers are increasing so much that we're we're targeting towards being the largest country with Spanish speakers. So like it or not, embrace other languages and think about that from your vantage point. If you're you hold a C position.
0: Yeah, I think it's an amazing. Uh concept and personally we have been operating internationally for uh, three years now but we went about it we kind of got into it a little bit by accident and now it's opened our eyes up uh, at at your CMO we needed to find more marketing coordinators that could support our full-time fractional CMOs and we bumped into an entrepreneur organization member who had a group of employees that were working out of Mexico and one conversation led to another and we hired one of our team members out of Mexico. And we're, we were surprised at. Just, Is that
1: Adrian that you talked to?
0: No, it was uh, Jeremy and Gwen Aspen. They, they own a okay. company called Anaquim and they, they okay. support um, the property management industry with um, with back office support. And so they've built a five, 600 person operation in Mexico to do this work, all bilingual um, employees and we we just kind of tapped into that network, hired our first employee, and we just it was amazing the talent that we were able to get access to, and just how easy it was to integrate them into our team, which is was, was concerning um, with the pandemic. I mean, it just that just normalized those virtual relationships and team building, so it became less of a, a hurdle. But then we'd have you know fast forward to the we have six full time employees in Mexico. We've got three full-time employees in the Philippines, and we have clients in Australia and in Europe, and we're considering a big push for clients in um, Spanish-speaking countries because we see there's a huge opportunity. Uh, so yes, I'm a big believer. I think it's huge, but it's, so, it's a big leap for someone who's never done it and not exposed to it. So how do you help people that have never thought about it, or what's the first step in really giving it some good consideration?
1: Well, the first step is to reach out to your. Uh, connections in the state, the federal and state governments provide free resources and grants to companies that are doing business international. And the re- reason is, as our balance of trade is so far off, we import so much more than we export. And so there are people in your state that will specifically help you. And then they've got contacts all over the world to help you grow into whatever country that you want. And if you don't know which place to go, they can help you develop a strategy and look for what would be the best market. Now, that's ideally is the way that you go you always want to have a strategy first but i hear of business owners doing all sorts of things sometimes it's you know they they want to visit the country or they have a second home or they've already got a connection in the country that they think that they can really leverage or you know like you you got employees there and so you have spanish speaking skills and so it makes sense to target the, the spanish speaking market um, I also hear about people who pay attention to their Google Analytics, and they see that business is coming in from Germany or Japan. You know, those are two examples of have the, uh, companies that have reached out to us. And then they go, huh, if I put a little bit of language translation on my website, I may be able to increase this business, which is really smart thinking. But I think step number one is find your state contract, contact, and that can be through the export center. They call them UCX. Your uh, trade representative from the Department of Commerce, it can be through the uh, SBDCs, the Small Business Development Centers, it can be through the SBA. And if you're interested and don't know where to start, go to our website and search STEP Grants, and it'll pull you right up to uh, the person um, that is in charge of the STEP Grants for your state. And our website is rapporttranslations.com. I'm sure you can put it in the show notes.
0: Yep, it'll be in the show notes for sure. Mm-hmm. So are there specific businesses that are better suited for international work than others?
1: A, a great question. So you would think that products would be the best because you think exporting products Um, So of course it works out great. If you have consumer products, Amazon's got some great programs that you can do. Um, Just remember to make sure you follow any regulations. Like if you're an electronic consumer product, you have to follow CE regulations for the EU, which means that you have to have um, multilingual packaging and user manuals. Um, And then you'd think maybe industrial products, you know things that are made in manufacturing, but actually the number one export from the United States is services. And really? so if you think about what you're doing, you're providing a service and you're exporting. And so there's, there's most of the exporters are small and mid-sized companies. It's not the large companies. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, I, I say it doesn't matter what you do. If you own a, own a dry cleaner or a local insurance agency or something that has to be very local. Notice I didn't say restaurant in there and I'll get to that. Um, a gas station, something like that. It's, it's really hard to, you know, you're a local business. You're, you're limited by geography. Now, I didn't add restaurants to that list because if you're a restaurant and you create a secret sauce or you've got some sort of recipe book or you sell items that would be interesting to people somewhere, um, then eh, what the heck, pop it on Amazon or ship it internationally or put it on your website. Cause you never know what, who might be interested in what you have.
0: Yeah. Do you see, um, an opportunity for franchises to, to, to translate and kind of go out of the country? And do you know much about that uh, as it relates to, um, whether or not you need to have specific franchising laws and, and and stuff in different countries like you do in the U.S.? Do you have any any experience in that arena? Uh,
1: I don't have experience, but I got a network of people <laughs> who do. So I think with franchises, of course, you have the opportunity because if you have traveled anywhere internationally, you know you can find a McDonald's and a, and a Starbucks. Right. I guess Starbucks isn't franchise, but McDonald's is. Um, And so there are so many franchises that are international, of course, there's going to be an opportunity for that so if you are a franchise. E or or, you could certainly look into it and you'd have to either gain the rights to own uh, a market there or, you know, look at what that would be. Now, there are all sorts of experts that help with entering the countries. And so you start with the free resources from the state and federal. But then I belong to um, IERG, which is International Executive Resource Group, which is internationals that have uh, or uh, executives that have worked all over the world. So they would have connections. I'm also part of Softland Partners, which is an organization of service providers that's connected all over the world. And so if we need a question answered from another country, we've got access to people who do business there. Um, And then plus there's EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, where you can get uh, in touch with all sorts of business owners from everywhere. So if if I had a client that was interested in doing that, um, of course, they need translation because anything they're doing in another country, they will translate because all, you know, I can cite research statistics on how people are more apt to buy if you provide in-language communication to them instead of saying, well, they speak English as a second language. You translate, they're more likely to come, more likely to stay, and more likely to spend more money.
0: Can't they just use Google Translator? <laughs> sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, it drives me mean, nuts when I see the plugin on websites. I mean, if you go, I do this. This is what I do for fun. I search down websites in other languages. So recently I went to a Chinese website and I could see they had the Google plugin on it. So I switched it to English so I could read it because Chinese isn't one of the languages I read. I know some words in it, like xixi ni. But I did the Google Translate on it And it was gibberish. I would never (laughs) buy from a website that had that on there. And not only that, not only are the businesses losing money, you don't know what liability is going to come up. There's already been legal cases where people have used Google Translate. And there's been a medical situation. There's been a legal situation. It's only a matter of time when there's a product liability situation because somebody used machine translation.
0: Yeah. So how do... um... How do you help companies then from a translation process? Because I, I, I would imagine there's just a lot that goes into that. It sounds simple. Just click a button on Google. But there's a lot more to, to do it the, the right way. Can you walk me through that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so if you're watching any video, you can see I'm holding up a book. I wrote The Language of Global Marketing to help lay out the steps. You can find it on Amazon. Just look for The Language of Global Marketing if you want a deep dive. Now, I'll give you the highlights for it. So we have something that we call the multilingual flywheel, and I do presentations about this all the time, but it breaks down how you think about your multilingual communications. And it starts with strategy, then process technology and quality, and each of those areas you've got to think about. The highlights on that are strategy. You've got to make sure your corporate strategy aligns with your marketing and your HR, all the other groups, Um, and then you have to make sure that that aligns with your multilingual strategy. Then you develop a process and within the to process, there's a lot of frameworks you can use to decide what needs to be translated and what doesn't. So rather than going, oh yeah, should we do this? Should we do that? You know, do we need to do this again? Or is this a one-time use or is this a multiple use? You develop a framework, either a four by four grid or by looking at the um, HubSpot flywheel or the stages of your buyer's journey. And so once you figure out the process for it, Then it's easy to replicate across languages. Then you look at technology. Now, Google Translate is really good. If you get uh, unsolicited email, you don't know what it's about, pop it in Google Translate and see what it says. You know, that kind of thing. You're having a casual conversation with workmates and you want to uh, figure out what something means, pop it into Google Translate, like, uh, you know, I, I see Fabulous uses for it. I think the technology is amazing. But if it's anything to affect your bottom line, um, you have to use human translation. But if you translate it once, it's just like if you write your marketing once, you reuse it across the different platforms. It's the same with translation. And so there you can use the technology called translation memory. So you use it once and then you reuse it to keep that consistency of voice. Um, And that's what we use in the industry. That's not something typically that you'd manage in-house. You're going to want to have an agency or your translator use that um, so they can keep it for you. And then the final part on that next ring of the flywheel is the quality. Okay, so segment out the kinds of quality you need. You need high quality for anything that's really important, legal, operationally, you know, for liability, um, marketing, so you don't lose clients. That's high quality. You need a human. Now, say you're a lawyer that you're doing a lot of discovery and you don't know which of the files has important stuff. Sure, pop it into machine translation, get the gist of it, review it, and then figure out what's the important folder. And you just translate that one that you would then, you, you know, you could use in court. Um, And there's also something called machine translation with post-human editing. Um, I think that's if you have a lot of content that doesn't have to be really well written, that would be fine. I've had people, I've had clients come to us who said, you know, we don't want the machine translation with post-human because it just didn't sound right. Right. And so they'd come to us get to get the high quality. So obviously, you can tell from us, we're in that high quality space, we don't do the high volume machine translation, but there are competitors that do. Okay, so now you've got your multilingual, you know, flywheel, you've got your stages you do your next ring is your audiences. So you've got to think about who's consuming it. Is it clients? Is it partners? Is it vendors? Is it employees? And you've got to make sure to have that. And then you get to the outer ring of what the actual content is, your website, your user manuals, your employee communications, your trainings. And so if you work your way out the multilingual flywheel, it helps you visualize a process of how to handle your multilingual communications.
0: What about audio, video, and human-to-human uh, co- conversations? Do you get into translation in, in, in that way, or is it all written?
1: Oh, excellent, excellent question. Okay, little known outside the industry, translation is written, and interpretation is spoken. Okay. Okay, so in translation, you'll hear a lot of words like localization, globalization, transliteration, transcreation, translation, all those, they have subtle little meanings. Okay. We, we do all of those, but I never start the conversation. What do you want? I go, what are you trying to accomplish? What's your strategy? Then we can figure out the kind of translation that they're going to need. Okay. The kind of written, if it's, um, video, you can do, you have two options. You can do a subtitles, which are different from closed captioning. Subtitles are just the words in there to help with language understanding. Closed captioning has all the laughter, background noise, truck drives by, all the things for somebody who's deaf or hard of hearing. OK, so you can do subtitles on a video, which is less expensive because there's no human uh, audio that you have to record and lay over, or you can do the audio, um, the dubbing. So you'd have to translate the material and then have the person come in, record it, and then your video editor would lay the, the um, voice on top. So would we,
0: you, I want to just pause there for a second because I think yeah. that's interesting. Uh, and I have a lot of experience in video. Would you recommend if an organization was really interested in in promoting their product or service externally um, to just create fresh new video in, with, with actors or act, you know, or real people in their native language and their native environments versus dubbing over an existing video?
1: Oh, such a fabulous question. <laughs> You're getting into some good questions. Okay. So that the answer is depends. <laughs> Okay, now, um, let me use two consumer product companies, because it'll give you a good example of it's not as easy to say, if you're industrial, you can dub or subtitle versus consumer, you have to you know, do it a specific way. Okay, so what you're talking about is cultural adaptation. That's making it so the viewer feels comfortable coming to your site and using it and not feeling like a second-class citizen or not important, okay? Or not like they're the target market. Okay, so if you think about um, Nike, they happen to be the shoes that I've run in for years, Nike Air Pegasus. If you go to the Nike website for anywhere in the world, it's gonna look very different, okay? The color choices are different. The people who are on there are different. The descriptions that they have on there are different because they're really localizing. So they're gonna do native um, local content creation because they really have to emotionally connect with who their buyers are. Now, look at Airbnb, okay? So this is for people who travel the world. Now, Airbnb and... um, TripAdvisor do a very good job with this. If you go on there, they have a very standard way of listing properties. Okay, so they have the, you know, the the number of people that could stay there. There's an icon that might show the number of people, you know, so they use a lot of visuals. They use a lot of formatting so so it's familiar. So even if another language came up, you might be able to understand it. Okay, on that, you can get away with subtitles or you can get away with um, um, dubbing because people are expecting people from all over to be buying from this site. And then if you go down in, so their sites are professionally translated, they're new content, but they use translation memory to populate a lot of their databases because a lot of the content is recreated. Now, if I'm a user and I wanna list my property there, I do it in my native language or I could also choose if I speak two languages, put it in for two languages. Now, I had fun playing around with this with Russia because I've always wanted to go to St. Petersburg, although right now my opinions on going mm-hmm. there is a, a little bit <laughs> shaded. But I was playing around on this about a year ago and I looked at a site in St. Petersburg and it was written all in Russian. A lot of the reviews were in Russian, but Google Translate was fine because I could read that it was close to a lot of the tourist sites that I wanted to see. And then for the reviews, I could see that it got five stars, which meant the same to everyone. And then down below, I could use Google Translate, you know, because they have that plugged in all over their site, Um, whether it's, I mean, it's machine translation, I just assumed it's Google, but I could get enough of the gist from the reviews that they were saying positive things. So it's not as easy to say, Which is better? You have to step back to the strategy and saying, what are you trying to accomplish? You have to think of the audience of who you're talking to and what their expectations are going to be. So the site is professionally done. They've avoided any liability. They've increased usership. They make it feel very welcome. But you know the individuals who are coming in are going to put it in their own language and you're willing as a user to accept that the translation isn't going to be as as good as you you know you would demand from the company
0: yeah that makes good sense that that answered my question thanks it's a it's a there's a lot that goes into this there's no real easy uh straightforward answers uh, it does depend and i'm sure that's why people reach out to your company for that kind of support and from time to time. So how did you get in this business? I'm always curious about people's paths. I have two
1: kids and I was laid off on both maternity leaves. Yes, it's supposed to be illegal, but you have to prove that it's discrimination. And one company was bought out, it was venture funded, it was bought out by another venture capital firm. And the other one was a large uh, global public company um, and they decided to do away with their corporate marketing department. So I was no longer heading up global marketing. And and at that point, I said, you know, enough. I've got two young kids at home. I'm really tired of this corporate thing. I had owned my own business before I went back to the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College to get my MBA. And um, I had always wanted to own my own business before, but I didn't have an idea of what to start. I didn't, you know, I was kind of wondering. And I didn't want to be the person that provided the service. I like doing the business building and leadership and business development and networking. So I wanted to focus on that side of the business. And I met somebody at a conference and he said, well, buy a business. And I kind of laughed. and I was like, with what money? I need to work. But that little idea was planted in my head, and I went and searched, buy a business on on the Google, (laughs) and came up with a bunch of business brokerage firms, and I had majored in foreign services, lived internationally, loved languages and cultures, and came across this little translation company for sale. Owner had run it for 18 years. She was ready to do something else. I was ready to come in. It was a natural That's 17 years ago, we've grown it phenomenally. I got an incredible team we've gone through. There was nothing called Google translate to how do we <laughs> incorporate that into what our customers are doing? So that's how I became a business owner.
0: <laughs> yeah. 17 years ago. That's a, so you've had a nice uh, journey as an entrepreneur, I imagine, like most of us, um, I'm really curious lately about uh, leadership and this, like what that term means to different people. So as a leader of your business, what do you think of your role as, as the leader? What, what are How would you describe that?
1: You know, that's interesting. Years ago when I was working with a coach, I wrote um, my job description and I'm looking it up because I'm looking up at my bulletin board because I have it up there and that's, is the person who stands in the center um, that helps make it all happen? You know, establishes responsibilities and procedures to get things done efficiently and seamlessly. The broker doesn't have to be involved with the day-to-day. She hires and inspires. And people can get it done the right way, and the right way aligns with our vision and mission, stays within our values and services the the clients how they want to be serviced. And then, uh, you know, I put down the activities that I do. So it's really, you know, it's been a transition for me because I, uh, you know, smaller in the company, I was very hands-on. And so I've struggled with letting go. But luckily, I've got two strong leaders that take it and run with it, and they've had a kick me in the butt to get me out of the way. I slowed them down and when I stepped out of the way the staff stepped up and they're they're doing it better. So uh you know I it's leadership is that's something special to watch and it's it's interesting. I'm on the board of EO um the Boston chapter and I watched the other people who are all leading businesses and I'm I'm learning a lot from our current president and watching the different styles and and how to think about it. So there's some natural leaders and there's something for all of us to learn.
0: Yeah. So you said you had two leaders that stepped up. What, what makes you define them as leaders? The same definition you gave yourself or do they have different attributes, qualities that make them leaders in your mind?
1: Um, so Linda started with me as a project manager. And she had had a long, productive career in corporate and had managed lots of people. And she was a stay-at-home mom that wanted to come back to work. And as we grew, I realized that she knew more about running operations than I did. And she paid more attention. Like, I I pay enough attention to details to get the project done right. But processes, systems, managing to the day-to-day events, I'm not good at. Um, she's really good at, and she's really good at working with people and setting expectations. So she had to, you know, boot me off our weekly calls and say, I'm taking over it. This is my team. And I was like, ah, <laughs> it's worked out fantastic. So I, you know, part of leadership is taking is taking ownership of it. And then being able to encourage the people to do what they need to, to do and yeah. make decisions on their own. Um, and so she's she's better at that than I am. And then the other leader that stepped up is Lisa, who um, had worked in HR but came on with me as kind of a support person, um, ends up she has phenomenal marketing skills so she's taken over our marketing um and we're all over social media so if you want to see some of the work that she does you can follow me on linkedin or facebook or uh, you know instagram or <laughs> twitter <laughs> you know we're posting TikTok. all the time fun <laughs> we're getting into tiktok this Are summer you? and we're going to okay. increase our our youtube stuff so uh um, wow. yeah yeah, but, um, you know, it's all about edutaining. I mean, I, we really try to educate people on how to get good translation, but our industry is loaded with fun stories and
0: oh, facts
1: bet. and culture. I mean, we have endless amounts of content to play with. If you have good content, send it in. We'll, uh, we'll share it around.
0: Oh, for sure.
1: Yeah. So she stepped up and really managed the people that, you know, that, that are working for her now to get all these activities done.
0: Yeah, I work with a lot of uh, fractional leaders. And um, it's interesting to see some of the things that they bring to their engagements. And and leadership is a, um, you know, it's a word we use a lot, but I don't know if it has a common definition for many people. And especially as business owners, you know, we're leading our own organizations, but We're also building leaders within our organization often. Um, It'd be nice if there was a common language around leadership. I mean, I think about it, some of the words I heard uh, resonate with me. I think about it as influence, like good leaders, bad leaders have influence. You know, they make Mm -hmm. people do things, uh, good or bad. And we see that playing out in in the Ukraine-Russia contract. The both of those could be considered good leaders because they have influence. One leads maybe... A different way than the other and one's the uh you know and one's probably in the right and one's probably in the wrong but uh that also depends on which side you're on so right. um but then leaders make decisions so that's a big piece of i think the leadership is decision making uh and mm-hmm. then uh development you know how do you develop leaders underneath you um so it sounds like you're, you've kind An of inspiring. Been there inspiring. I think
1: inspiring, right. inspiring, I'd add to that. Um, and the other one is um, uh, it's setting a vision, like getting everybody to follow right. the same roadmap. What's one good word for that?
0: Yeah, but you know, it's vision. Visioning brings a vision, right? And that, so where, where I'm, uh, Spending some of my time, it's it's trying to understand how you can build tr- leadership at all levels of the organization and incorporate vision and inspiration and influence and decision making and development at every level. So, in an ideal world, you've got a decentralized organization of leaders that, um, all, that
1: are all working in the same direction.
0: Yes, which is which is
1: the tricky part.
0: Exactly. Um, yeah. And how do you, how do you do that? Is is the, the crux of the problem there. You, know, you can have, and we we see it in EO. We're both EO members, We're both on EO boards. And you know, that's a group, it's a, it, you're, you're in the midst of leaders. You're leading leaders when you run the board, but you're also leading your own role on the board. It, and there are so many different styles, but it does take a shared vision for everybody to do their own piece of it, to execute on their own piece of it.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and it's certainly generally-
0: is- not a single person's vision. So it's like a collective process to build that vision as well.
1: Yes. Yes. What's the, what's the saying about me and we, I get less done with me. I get more done with we, Yeah, (laughs) something like that. But that's something early on. Every time I was stuck, my coach would say, well, have you talked to your team about that? And so now anytime I feel stuck or alone, I'm like, Ooh, important conversation to have with the team. I don't have to swirl it around in my head. And then it's solved really quickly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The whole fractional leadership is, is, is fascinating too, because if you're a long term leader, it's a different skill set than a fractional leader. Because as a fractional, uh, you know, in a fractional, any kind of role, you've got to come in, be a leader. And get work done.
0: Yeah, it's very, it's very different. Um, it's, it's it's unique to for someone that has been a leader in an organization to then go out and be fractional um, mm-hmm. in other organizations. It's a there's different skill sets that they have to tap into. Um, mm-hmm. That you have to. It's assumed that you have the expertise to fulfill that role as a CMO or CTO or COO or CFO. So let's assume you've got the skills um, that allow you to do that work. To have the impact as a fractional leader versus a a full-time leader, you have to do different things. Fractional leaders have to, as you said, show up and deliver almost immediately. There's an expectation that I'm going to get stuff done every month from the get-go and it's going to be high-level stuff and it's going to have immediate impact where the expectation of a full-time hire is, Hey, you got three, six, nine months to kind of work your way into this role and, and start making the change. So you've got an expectation issue you're, you're dealing with and you have to be able to, um, influence differently. So, as a full-time leader, you're you're in the in, you're in the office when, when we have offices, and and you're in the hallways, and you're at the water coolers, and you're in the other meetings, the outside, the boardroom meetings. But as a fractional, you're just there, a limited time, trying to make the connections and have that influence. Um, but you don't have those outside of the meeting conversations. You don't have the water cooler conversations. You're not able to get to know people personally on the same level often as, as you would be without creating some intentional, some intentionality behind doing that. And so we talk to fractionals all the time where they realize that. And so they are, they intentionally reach out and try to have those one-on-ones and those other meetings to to build some rapport and uh, relationships that way, but it's harder. Um, But in many ways, the, 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 Fractionals can can get more done sometimes than full-time because they don't have some of those distractions either, Hmm. and they don't get some of that filler work to do, Um, and they're able to focus really on strategy or or high-level work, and they can be more productive. And at the price point, when you look at it from a just a pure dollars and cents standpoint, I think it's the biggest opportunity that business owners have today is accessing fractional leaders. You mentioned it's really hard to let go and that's one of the reasons it doesn't happen. But if you are a business leader and you're in the C-suite and you're wearing more than one hat, a fractional could probably take one of those hats and allow you to do your job better, be more productive for the business and a good fractional leader can you can trust to do that job better than you probably could. And so that's the opportunity that I see in business i don't know if you see it as well with people that you know or work with in the fractional areas.
1: That's uh, you know, i was just going down the list of influencer decisions, development, inspiring and visioning and i starred like a, a you know, those are all the things that a full-time leader would have to be, but a fractional you're really coming in and doing visioning and developing and influencing.
0: Yeah. From the, from right, right off the get go. Absolutely.
1: Right. So if you have a CEO that can make decisions and can inspire, then your job as a fractional is helping that vision get, you know, setting a vision of what's going to be done in this area. And then let's get it done. And then I've got to influence the people that are going to get it done. Right. But you don't have to do all the relationship building and the, you know, the inspiring and the, that stuff of the full-time person and they have to make the decisions and yeah. support the, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way.
0: And in some ways the, the fractional leader is making a lot of the decisions also, you know, there's, there's a certain, it, it's a comfort level how much decision-making that the owner or yeah. the c suit's going to allow that fractional leader to make similar to a full-time leader. In, in that regards as well. Like what decisions yeah. are you going to let your full-time person make and, 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 or not make. And some of us are macro managers and some are micromanagers and that, that plays into it. And there's a big cultural component to fractional leadership that makes, makes or breaks the relationships that I've seen as well. Some, and what uh,
1: say more about that.
0: Some um, well, there has to be a cultural fit. And that depends yes. on the, culture of the organization, what that fit looks like. So some if their leadership style is very loose and soft and, and fuzzy, and you get a hard charge driven. I need accountability. I need this. I need that. There's not going to be a fit, and vice versa. Um, there's which is interesting
1: because there you're talking about business culture and how you work, and so then if you layer on language and ethnic culture on. The potential for innovation and higher productivity is much higher, but it becomes more challenging because already it's challenging if the business culture or the work culture doesn't fit. Right. But then you add that other level to it, which is real interesting because it might be to an advantage for an international company to bring you know, one of your fractionals in to help them with their U.S. expansion, but I could imagine there would be a lot of frustration for that, but a lot of benefit.
0: Yeah, we've seen it. We had international clients, and we've they've wanting to make a mark in the U.S., so they hire U.S.-based CMO fractionally, and um, we've had it work really well, and we've had it not work so well, and it comes down to kind of the understanding of communication between mm-hmm. the different organizations. What's important to us to, to, communicate and what's important to others to communicate, um, culturally is different. And uh, whether you're pace.
1: direct, like we are here in the yes. United States or indirect in many countries where mm-hmm. that might not work is telling you that's not going to work. And as American, you're thinking, okay, it might not work. Let's figure out how we are going to make it work. And yeah. So those subtleties. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the pace, you know, um, there's there's a lot of there's just a lot of moving parts there, which is fascinating. Yeah. It's exciting. It's it makes the it makes it a lot of opportunity when you can figure that out. Um, but we have U.S. Oh, and
1: all the research, like w- w- when it first started coming out. I mean, basically, we're talking about diversity and inclusion here. When it first, you know, that first came about, it was the right thing to do. Now, McKinsey and Harvard Business Review, they all publish articles with the statistics on how much better the companies do financially, how companies that aren't diverse or don't bring in those cultural struggles suffer for it and um, the longevity and the increased innovation you get. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can figure out those communications challenges with somebody, you know, the international company coming in, everybody benefits. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's very interesting. Even, even then, you know, as we work internally with our employees that are in different countries. Um, We have to understand those same conversations and communication issues, uh, not just language, but just how direct can you be with an employee that's used to being very indirect. And uh, it's it's fascinating how different we are in some ways, but then at the core, everybody's very similar. Everybody wants to Mm. do a good job.
1: They mm-hmm. want
0: to improve their themselves and the company and the people around them, and so there's really h- figuring out what those core fundamentals are, and, and and rallying around that as much as you can is is where we've found some success. Our com- our um, our Mexican and our Filipino employees are so family focused. I mean, we're family yes. focused, I think, in the U.S., but it's just at a Not great like, level there. Yeah, uh, but it's that's the bond also. Like, you know, you talk about kids and you talk about family and you understand, you know, we need to take time for you to spend time with your family. And so it's the differences there, but the similarities are there as well.
1: Yes, so I, as a child, lived in Mexico, and I lived in the Filipino in the Philippines for a little while, also oh, Taiwan. Wow. But yes, Mexico, and that was one thing that my parents loved particularly about Mexico because we were there longer. That you know, the just the enjoyment of family and children, and everybody was included. So it's funny. A number of years ago, I talked to a woman who had a yoga, yoga studio in a um, Spanish-speaking part of town. It it was in the United States and she said, I'm having a really hard time getting the mothers to come. And so, you know, we thought about I thought about it with her a little while, and I was like, Well, why don't you make it family yoga? And so she's like, That's a great idea, you know, and you could easily do that and make it a a community event rather than just for the moms because they need to take care of themselves because they're not going to do that. They value the time with the kids and their husband. So I, I I should have kept in touch with her so I could tell you how it fu- yeah. <laughs> it, it, it turned it, it out. But...
0: Miserably. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> in my little mind, I like to think that everything was wonderful <laughs> and her studio was highly successful and families and kids and everybody loved yoga. <laughs> yeah,
0: I bet you it was. I've, I've, I've gone to yoga with my children before and uh, it's always been a good experience. I, I could imagine that would track them to be able to come. Maybe they don't have to figure out daycare whatever
1: right right exactly yeah
0: so what else you do for fun these days wendy
1: well i just got back from florida kind of just starting to get into travel again and i took my uh senior in high school son down there to go scuba diving. I used to dive a lot in my 20s and he just got certified. So we had a blast doing that. He's a, he's a fish. So he took to it naturally and scuba diving in Florida was surprisingly good. I had never been, I've been all over the world, but I hadn't been there and I enjoyed it more than I thought I would.
0: Really? What part of Florida? I'm not and a we scuba t- diver, but what, for those that are listening, what, what's the good part of Florida to go dive in?
1: Well, we stayed on Lukey, Key, which is just north of Key West, and they didn't go out diving because the winds were so bad. Apparently, this time of year, the trade winds are strong. So even though it was 70s and sunny and I thought we'd be fine, they didn't go. But they connected us to Key Dives, which was a great outfit. If you're going diving, they're in Isla Mirada. Um, it's just called key dives. Their dive masters were fantastic. Their boat, boat was very safe. They took us out to a bunch of different dive sites. We saw an octopus, we saw sharks, we saw turtles, um, flamingo tongues, also, you know, and then tons of the, the blue tangs, the angelfish, the grouper, um, so the, the manta rays. So it was loads of fun. So I'd recommend going to Isla Murata and Key Dives.
0: Okay, great. We did have a chance to do snorkeling at the Barrier Reef. That was uh, a bucket list item for me. My daughter was staying overseas in Australia for a summer and, or a, a semester. And my wife and I went out and visited her. And that that's as um, close to scuba diving as I got. And it was fantastic. I can only imagine what it's like putting a tank on and actually getting underwater for a long period of time, but just snorting.
1: Compare it like going to a zoo where you see the animals at a distance versus walking in the woods and coming across live animals. Like it's just, you're completely immersed in it. So if you have an interest, I recommend getting certified.
0: Yeah. I have interest in lots of things, but (laughs) (laughs) not enough time for all my interests, but that sounds fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I do that. And then when I'm at home, I got a Peloton. So I'm enjoying that. I'm global cycler. If you want to follow me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What's it like translating Peloton? Have you ever thought about that?
1: You know, they have German instructors and Spanish speaking instructors, and I speak more Spanish. I don't speak German, Um, but somehow I'm doing a challenge uh, for for your core with a german speaking instructor okay (laughs) i'm getting a kick out of that but i keep meaning to do one of the the spanish workouts i should do them all the time and and get my ear back up for spanish but you know it's only a matter of time until they add additional languages on there it's fantastic
0: Yeah. I got to figure that the German instructors are a little more hardcore than the Spanish (laughs) instructors. Just the culture, like the German words would just get me like, all right, whatever you say, I'll run, I'll cycle faster. I promise.
1: (laughs) The woman that I have is delightful, but her core is massively strong. So (laughs) she's not, I would have thought that too, but uh, she's, she's smiley and nice and, and I can understand enough. Plank pose and <laughs> yes. is in German. There's a lot of sports words that end up being in German. So uh yeah, yeah, it's fun. But yeah, I hope to get back to international travel. There's nothing I like better than being dropped in a country where I don't speak the language and navigating around and meeting locals and doing the local things. I mean, that's that's what floats my boat.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm a I've been um, making it. A priority to get some international travel in as well and it's so exciting just to visit a new place whether it's in the U.S. or out of the U.S. but then a whole nother culture and a whole nother country it just comes with it. it's, a, it's exponentially more interesting I think to me and um, I really want to learn Spanish so that I can spend more time in Mexico with our co-workers and team there and then travel um, and I have a little Spanish from my high school years but gosh that was a you know, decades ago, and uh, I need to figure out how to get it back. Maybe, maybe Peloton's the way I can, I can figure that out.
1: <laughs> and there you go. There's also, um, I'll see if I can look it up right now. But there's a language learning app that um, is in New Hampshire. If I can find it, but they are they've been around for years. That. Uh, yeah, I'm not finding it right now. And if, when I find it, I'll, I'll send it over to you. But they, um, you know, you use any of the Duolingos or, that, or those kind of things where you can do it. But this app was really good. I uh, went to see them once. They cha- train a lot of the military. And by doing it on the app, you can actually record your voice and it gives you feedback on your accent. And you can pick different criteria. Like if you want to learn business English or business Spanish versus travel Spanish or living there Spanish. So you can help change the vocabulary in, but you know, as a, language services provider, I always say, you just need to speak English really well and then get an interpreter. (laughs) Yeah, you can, and you know, we offer telephone interpreting that you can get somebody on the line within 20 seconds and help facilitate a conversation. You can add somebody into a Zoom call and they can help facilitate. You can have in-person. So there's a lot of different ways. If you're hosting a big conference, There's actually a technology that we have um, that that we, you know, we contract to sell that uh, the speaker speaks in their native language. And then if you download the app for the conference, you can click it and it'll give you the transcript in language. So it's like a Google Translate. It's not good. But by the time you hear English as a second language and then have Spanish there, if you're a native Spanish speaker and can read along, it's two different ways you're taking in the the language to help. And it's a lot cheaper than hiring a simultaneous interpreter. So for those of you out there who don't know, don't have an interest or don't have the skills to learn a second language, don't be afraid of doing international business because you can do a lot with a little bit of assistance that can Give you a great big ROI.
0: Yeah, that's great to know. And I've been on Zoom calls uh, through actually through EO on a global board position where the uh, Japanese speaker member, just like me, a peer of mine, doesn't speak any English. Everyone else is pretty well spoken in English, no matter what country they're in. It seems like that's the some of the language of business. But nonetheless, on the Zoom calls, he's got a translator. And when he's speaking, you can go in on Zoom and you can say English version and you're hearing the translator and you're not hearing him at all. Yeah. And uh, if you turn turn it off on native, you're hearing him. It's so fascinating how the technology has allowed that to happen. Uh, and if you just select it at the beginning of the call, every time he speaks, you're always hearing the translated version. It's just it's like. I don't know, it's like Star Trek or something. <laughs> you know, they yeah,
1: the, yeah. Machines are like, oh,
0: I can hear you saying, that's great.
1: <laughs> yeah, now now, I'm pretty sure they have a human behind that, right?
0: But yeah, there's got to be a human that's also on okay. the with us. I don't see her ever. Um, it's a, yeah, her there's some automated
1: functions that aren't good that you can do that. But Zoom's platform is built to have somebody in there. And that's, we'd provide interpreters to... To facilitate that conversation so you can set it up that it would have the option and you can pick it. So, uh, yeah, it's it's fantastic. Well, that's those people, the simultaneous interpreters are fascinating. Imagine listening to something and then having to repeat it at the same time you're taking it in. They, they say they're not even processing the language in the meeting. They're just repeating it because they're just so focused on the words coming in and out. So they do it for about 15 or 20 minutes and then they tap out and somebody else will come on because it's just such a concentrated thing. Even as a speaker, you have a moment to stop and collect your thoughts. But as the interpreter, simultaneous interpreter, you don't.
0: Wow. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That is pretty yeah. taxing on them. Uh, I've seen a, uh, an, in, when in my video business that I've, was involved with we, we would have an actress come and she would she'd have a script that she would work on and she would get she would record the script herself and then she would play the recording into her ear and then she could just uh, she could just interpret the script and she didn't even know what the words were like she didn't even care what was in the script she just listened and spewed and it was fascinating like that is some sort of talent i can't believe you can you can do that that well
1: Oh, there's, there's, I mean, the linguists that we work with are amazing because you've got people that can do that. And then you've got translators who are like writers that they, um, you know, quote dictionaries. They do research. They're very thoughtful. A lot of them have advanced degrees. They've had other professions and they come to this. So, you know, they're the more thoughtful writery people. And then you get the, the consecutive interpreters that are running around making sure everybody's taken care of, like at doctor's appointments or depositions, um, business meetings where one person says something and then the interpreter says it and then the other person repeats. So they're like a cultural condense, uh, you know, a conduit, cultural conduit, because they're trying to make sure that those people are getting along and understanding each other. So you know, when you look at all these linguists, and the, not only are they bilingual, but they've got deep subject matter expertise in each area, and then their skill sets are so different. So, Yeah. Yeah. So don't ever discount them. Give it, yeah. <laughs> I always, you know, all the first responders, like the doctors and the nurses and the ambulance drivers and the EMT, they all got credit, which deservedly 100% they got during the whole uh, pandemic shutdown. But I just kept looking at the interpreters who are going into the hospital to facilitate these conversations. They were another whole group of first responders that really deserved a lot of credit.
0: Yeah. That's good. And some of the things that um, you know, we take for granted, just speaking and communicating is not that way for everybody, depending where you are and where you came from.
1: And That's speaking it. of speaking and communicating, do you know what the one gesture that is recognized internationally is the same?
0: Hi the smile ah the smile <laughs> that's terrific yes
1: because thumbs up can have an offensive meaning the okay sign can have an offensive meaning waving your hand like come here with your palm turned up can be meaning so some countries they wave with the palm down so how people wave hello is all different but the smile is the only international gesture that's great uh,
0: well, what a great way to end. So with a nice big smile, I appreciate your time, Wendy. It's been great. Just, this conversation is so fascinating to me, what you do and, and how you open up the world for all of us. It's exciting. Um, what's the best way for someone to reach out and get in touch with you if they have interest in following up?
1: Well, if you go to my Linktree, you can find everything there. So I don't know if you know Linktree, but it's L-I-N-K-T-R dot e -e slash wendy w e n d y peas p e a s e and if you go there you can download a couple free chapters of my book you can get to the podcast where i interview fabulous guests our website and all my social media handles so that's a good way to find me
0: great well we will uh try to get that in that in the show notes everybody has easy access to it and uh, for all the listeners, thank you. Uh, this has been a good hour with uh, Wendy and I hope to talk to you further. And Wendy, once again, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. What would be a good word to say goodbye in? Uh, pick, a, pick a language and say, uh, thank you. I can say gracias, but uh, that's
1: <laughs> Say gracias a Dios or yeah. merci. merci, au revoir. Au <laughs> revoir.
0: Very good. Thank you. Muy bien. And that's a wrap. There's another successful episode of the Fractional C-Suite Retreat. See our show notes and more episodes at fractionalcsuitretreat.com. This podcast is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow, save time and money with better marketing strategy and fractional execution. Visit them at yorcmo.com, yourcmo.com, spelled wrong on purpose.